I had a great reminder this week that um, things are not always as they appear to be. On Thursday, Amy and I were just trying to make a quick errand, quick stop at Target that she needed just to step in and buy something, and we pulled into the parking lot, and we parked near a car that I looked at the car and, and the two men in the car and thought, maybe just a little bit shady, um, to be honest. I know you don't think, as a pastor, I'm supposed to judge anybody. Um, but the one, the one guy got out and went, and the other guy was clearly going to stay while his friend went in, and he was just kind of chomping on snacks, and it looked like he had the munchies or something. And uh, I was like, why don't we just all go in? You know, let's just all go in instead of me stay out with the kids. So we, we get ready, and Amy pulls out Joshua, and uh, she's like, uh-oh, he needs a diaper change. And I was like, oh. Okay, we're just trying to make a quick stop. So, look, you go in. I'll, we're in the van. The trunk is folded in. I can just go in the back. I've got my own little area. I'll change the diaper. You go shopping. We'll be good. So I go into the back, and I am changing this diaper. And then the gentleman in the car next to us then comes back out of the store, and then all he can see is Levi in the car seat. He doesn't see anyone in the front seat, and he doesn't see anyone in the back. So then he notices a Target employee across the parking lot, and he says, Man! Ma'am, there's a baby left in the car. There's a baby left in the car. And there I am in the trunk like, whoa, (laughs) sir, sir, no, I'm right here. And he at least had the compassion and the concern to uh, get help if that was in fact the situation. And so he judged my situation wrongly and I judged his situation wrongly uh, was the lesson at the end of that. But uh, not everything is as it appears to be. And we, we get this reminder in our text today in the book of Acts as uh, we look, continue to look at the life of the Apostle Paul. And so I'll encourage you now to take a Bible and to open it to Acts chapter 23. We're actually trying to cover three chapters, so we're not going to read them in their entirety. We're just going to read portions of it. But all throughout, even as we read the events, there's always something that God is doing that is more significant than what just the details at any moment, just the snapshot can actually give us. And so Acts chapter 23, you'll find it on page 932. We're actually going to pick it up at verse 6 and read through verse 24 of this chapter, and then we'll skip a little bit into chapter 24. But Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that One part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. 
Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by a hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed and the young man charging him Tell no one that you've informed me of these things. And then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And then all those soldiers obey those orders, and Paul makes it to Felix, and then we learn about this, skipping to the 22nd verse of chapter 24. So you're going to turn a page to 934 in verse 22 through 27. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity... I'll summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, and so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And so that's where we'll conclude our reading for now. So for those of you who haven't been with us, what is happening here, the backstory, is that Paul desired to make it back to Jerusalem to give an offering in the temple. An offering to God is an act of worship to thank God for all of his faithfulness through Paul's ministry. But as Paul was traveling back into Jerusalem, people were warning him that it might not be safe for him in Jerusalem, that there were people there that didn't like him and that wanted to harm him. Yet that didn't deter Paul. He, he knew that too. The Holy Spirit had confirmed that for him. But he wanted to go and offer his act of praise and worship to God. And so when he entered in the temple, somebody made a false accusation against him of speaking against the temple and of bringing certain Gentiles into the part of the temple where they weren't permitted to go. And Paul did none of that, but they were just so angry at him that they arrested him and were actually ready to kill him. It caused such an uproar in the city that the Roman authority realized what was going on and sent someone down, not knowing any of the details, but just 
rescued Paul out of pure compassion. And then as he rescued him, he said, so why do you guys hate him so much? And he got so many conflicting stories that he didn't know what to do. And so he kept him in prison. And then that's where we picked it up today, where a group of them finally came to make their case and to say what it was that they had against Paul. And it was a mixed group of people. There were Sadducees and Pharisees. And Paul was a Pharisee, and Paul knew the difference between them. And so what Paul does is quite brilliant. He introduces something in which those groups of people are divided over, and it's the belief in the resurrection. And so as they're trying to make their case against the council there in Jerusalem, Paul says, if you really, really want to boil it down, I'm on trial today because of my belief in the resurrection. And then that splits the room because half of them believe like Paul in the resurrection and half of them don't. And so what we read was they they get divided and their division becomes violent for one another. But one of the good and great points that we can take away from this is that yes, we do have enemies in our lives, but the enemy is divided. The forces of evil, as the scripture says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But those principalities and powers, still even on their best day, do not know how to work well together. They're divided. They have competing goals and interests. And therefore, though they are permitted at times to do things and to act in certain ways, there is always a contradiction in sin. Sin and evil is always self-defeating. And played out over a period of time, allowed to go its way, someone fully committed to sin is someone fully committed to self-destruction. And they might hurt and harm a lot of people and things along the way. But at the end of the day, all that they want to bear out on someone else falls upon them as well. So the God who has allowed the world to be as it is and where there is a lot of brokenness and a lot of sin and there are enemies and there are people that desire to harm us has limited the parameters of what they can do and in part in such a way that they always operate in confusion. That's usually what they work with is just to confuse things, to complicate things. Sometimes we can become so intimidated by the thoughts of the power of demons or the devil that we walk in fear, not realizing that at the end of the day, our enemy is divided. And this isn't just something that Christians struggle with. I mean, you can pull up uh, almost any radio station or news source, and they'll say, you know, the 20 heads of, of, of the global banks are together in, in this city, and they're all conspiring against us. Good luck if those 20 people can agree on almost anything. They all look at each other as competitors. Oh, uh, you know, the, the heads of eight different countries are meeting to talk about oil prices or this or that. If you and I actually got to sit in on those meetings, we would see how divided they are because they all have competing interests and desires. It's always what happens in our own government. Everyone can agree that we need to make budget cuts, but nobody can agree where those cuts should be made. And they don't ever want them made in their own district because that affects their ability to get reelected. And so there's a constant disagreement and division that exists. And it's an encouragement to us. Paul sees that and he exploits it. That there are a lot of people that hate him, but they're divided on what they believe in. They're divided on what they care about. And so he introduces to them a word that puts them in an uproar. But it gets dangerous for Paul. I mean, it says they're about to take his life, and so they have to call an end to the meeting and take him away by force into the barracks. 
And then Paul receives this good news in verse 11 of chapter 23, right from Jesus himself. Jesus says to him, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And what Paul hears as a word of encouragement is that God's plan is secure. It's secured. It it might look like at times that God's not in control because here Paul is and he's in this room and there's all these people saying all kinds of things about him and they're divided in what they're saying but they're united in their hatred and they're united in their desire to do violence. And so it could at times for Paul just challenge his faith to say, is God really in control? Is he doing something here? Does he have a purpose behind this? And this word comes to him right from Jesus to say, your life is not going to end here in Jerusalem. They're conspiring against you. They want to harm you, but take courage. You will also testify to me in Rome. And Paul had to believe in that moment that just as God had been faithful to him in the past, that even though it might not have quite looked or felt like it in the present, that he could trust God now and forever that God's plan really is secure. And that's the quote in the back of the handout we have for you from John Stott, to believe that God is working out in time a plan which he conceived in a past eternity and will consummate in a future eternity. That is true at every point in our life, that God is working out something that doesn't always immediately strike us or is apparent to us that maybe God is in this and maybe God is doing something. And we need words of encouragement from God himself and also from one another to remind ourselves that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that he really is the sovereign one and he is the one who's never caught off guard and never surprised and he is the one who's never deceived by appearances. He knows exactly what's going on and he knows exactly where things are headed. And Paul needs this word of encouragement because of what happens next. It says 40 people get together and they take a solemn vow that they will not eat or drink until they've taken Paul's life. That's how committed they are. 40 people taking a vow. And not just a vow among themselves. They go before the the leaders. They embrace public accountability for the vow that they make and they say, basically, hold us to this. That we're not going to eat or drink until we make an end of Paul's life. And then we hadn't ever really up to this point heard about Paul's family. But Paul has a sister who was a mother who raised her son in such a way that when he heard this conspiracy, he did something about it. We don't know how young he is. It just says he's a young man. He's Paul's nephew. And he overhears this conspiracy. And he goes up to his uncle and he tells him what he heard. And so... Paul says to him, you need to go carry this message to the leader so that he knows what's going on. We have to just assume that that was a, still a risky endeavor to ask for an appearing before the leader and to, if anyone would maybe say, hey, were you, were you at that meeting? Did you see what we were talking about? Aren't you related to him? But he cares for his uncle. He's willing to go. He tells the leader what's going to happen And then it's it's just such an amazing picture of what this now 
governor does, this leader does. He orders 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to give Paul an escort in the middle of the night. And here we see that the enemy is not only divided and God's plan is secured, but the enemy is in fact defeated. It's just a beautiful contrast in numbers. 40 people committed to Paul's destruction and now over 400 people assigned to his protection. Isn't that awesome? For every one person committed to his destruction, 10 people now assigned to his protection and his provision. That Paul, upon entering Jerusalem and hearing all these warnings of how dangerous it's going to be and what's going to happen, what was it like for him in the middle of the night to travel? He is someone with no weapons, no protection around him. He'd given up fighting a long time ago. He was himself a very violent person, but he hadn't been for a couple of decades. But here he is surrounded by all the protection of the state, guided in the middle of the night. How encouraging that must have been to him to say, man, God really is faithful. Though they've taken this vow, though they've committed themselves passionately against me, God's purpose for me is always greater than the purpose of the enemy against me. And he will make provision for what I need. The enemy is defeated. Sin is always self-destructive. No matter how sincere they are, when we sincerely commit ourselves to the wrong way, by definition, we can never succeed. When we sincerely and passionately commit ourselves to the wrong way, we, by definition, can never succeed. So Paul is taken, and what we skipped over is eventually there's a letter written that is addressed to Felix to say, hey, here's Paul, this is what's happening, it's clearly too dangerous here, you take care of it. And so Paul has an opportunity a couple of times to explain to Felix at Caesarea why he's there. Others come from Jerusalem to testify against him, and Paul makes a defense, and he boils it all down in chapter 24 again to say, I am on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. That's why I'm here, because that's what I'm proclaiming. I have this hope in the resurrection. It's what I believe. It's what I'm preaching. I'm not preaching against the temple. I'm not preaching against the law. I'm not preaching against the Jews. I am taking all of that and preaching for the hope that we have in the resurrection because of Jesus Christ. And so then what we read as we skipped to 24 was that Felix, the governor in Caesarea, has a pretty accurate knowledge of some of the debates that are going on because he's married a woman who is Jewish. And so they regularly call in Paul at different times to to speak to them. And one of the things that they're hoping for is that Paul will actually pay them off with a bribe. While Paul was in prison, Felix says, don't don't forbid any of his friends from coming to visit him. You know, he's not a threat. He's not dangerous. A lot of people are a threat to him, He doesn't seem to be a threat to anyone else. So let anyone who wants to, to visit him. Part of this also might have been because the word might have gotten around that Paul had just brought a bunch of money to Jerusalem. I mean, that's one of the reasons he wanted to get to Jerusalem. He was taking a collection for the poor from all over the Roman Empire that he wanted to bring back for those in need in Jerusalem. And he was doing that in part to try to... um, combat against the reputation that he was receiving as no longer caring about Jerusalem. And so if Felix would have heard that through his wife or anyone else, that Paul's got connection to money. He collected a lot of money, and he brought it here. 
Maybe if I keep him here long enough, some of his friends will bring some of that money and I can get some of it. But he doesn't get any of that money. And then it says he's basically left in prison for two years. And you and I can look at that and say, the Apostle Paul just left in prison for two years? That seems wasteful, doesn't it? I mean, what an amazing man of God, what an amazing evangelist, what an amazing church planter, what an amazing apostle. For two years, he just, that's it, just one verse, and then he left him there for two years. What? <laughs> God, what do you, what, how is your plan secure? What, do, what are you doing in this that he would just sit there? But where our minds should go quickly is to the vow that those 40 made. Those 40 men made a vow that they would not eat or drink anything until Paul was killed. And God says, I'm going to tuck them in this little prison for two years. You tell me how long you can keep that vow. You tell me how that's working for you. We don't know. At what point they broke down. But it was a long enough period of time that every one of those men was confronted with the reality that they could not keep their vow. Paul didn't have to do anything. God did it. God protected him, put him in a prison where he could see his friends at any moment and they were confronted with the reality that they had committed themselves to the wrong way. It's also in prison that we don't know for sure which letters Paul might have written at this time, but so many of his letters are addressed from being in prison that Paul took advantage of the opportunity to say, I have time. I'm not going anywhere. Let me write something down. Let me send it to my friend who's going to send it to the church. And that's how we have a New Testament. That's how we have words to read from him so that we can gather together and we can take courage in our situation Because in the plan of God, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Two and a half years of the apostle being bound in prison is not a waste of time. Paul could write in his letters of some of his captors that had become Christians because of his testimony to them in prison. Because he believed God's plan was secure. He believed God was watching over him, and so he believed that in the economy of God, nothing is truly wasted. And we can only come to that final conviction that nothing is wasted if we really believe that God's plan is secured. That even in our hardest times, even in our deepest pains and struggles, God is always doing more than what we can see in the moment. I think it's summed up incredibly well in a beautiful hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. William Cowper writes, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast 
unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. From an old hymn to a contemporary song by Jason Gray. The song is entitled, Nothing is Wasted. The hurt that broke your heart and left you trembling in the dark, feeling lost and alone, will tell you hope's a lie. But what if every tear you cry will seed the ground where joy will grow and nothing is wasted? In the hands of our Redeemer, nothing is wasted. It's from the deepest wounds that beauty finds a place to bloom. And you will see before the end that every broken piece is gathered in the heart of Jesus and what's lost will be found again. Nothing is wasted. In the hands of our Redeemer, nothing is wasted. From the ruins, from the ashes, beauty will rise. From the wreckage, from the darkness, glory will shine. Nothing is wasted. In the hands of our Redeemer, nothing is wasted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we long to take fresh courage from you. To believe and trust in our hearts and our minds and all that we are experiencing that just as you were faithful in our past, that you can be faithful in our present and that you will be faithful for our future. That all the forces of darkness against us are divided and defeated. And that your plan is secure and that every decision and roadblock and setback that we might experience in this life can still in some mysterious way to us be gathered together by you and that you can make something beautiful from ashes, that you can bring joy from sorrow, that you can make your light shine out of darkness. We continue to pray for that truth to be lived out powerfully through the testimony of our sister Ellen that is her family and friends and others reflect on her life and the faith that she had in you in the midst of much trial and much suffering and much pain, that they would be confronted by you, by your goodness, by your love that was poured out so richly and expressed so powerfully through her life. And that people that right now are living committed to the wrong way to a path of self-destruction, would repent, would turn and trust in you, would find their hope and their confidence and their joy and their salvation in you. And we pray that in our own lives, in our stories, in all of our experiences, that you would help us to realize that nothing is ever totally as it appears or seems, that you are always doing something more. And so we ask that you give us that courage to press on, to trust you, to love you. In your son's name we pray, amen.